We stand today at the threshold of a great event. Both in the life of the United Nations and in the life of mankind. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe. This universal declaration of human rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Human rights for everyone, for men and women, for the majority and the minority, especially the minority. The big idea of the Universal Declaration is that everyone on the globe has the same political, social, and economic rights. All humans are born free and equal in dignity. All human and beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. No one should be held in slavery. No one shall be held in slavery and servitude. Everyone without discrimination. Everyone has Everyone the right. has the right to work without distinction of any kind. Without such distinction as race, of any kind. Color, such as race, sex, color, language, sex, religion. I'm Alana Bridgewater. In this series, The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights. We'll look at the history of jazz, blues, the roots of black music in America, and what it all had to say about civil rights, economic rights, women's rights, and the rights of people around the world. But if history tells us anything, it's that the big idea and the way we live it in real life. When you see what's going on here in the States, man, it just seems like utter chaos. Some of the things that I thought we were past don't always match up. Desegregation is against the Bible. I find my scripture for this in Genesis 9, 27. We are going to maintain segregated schools down in Dixie. You have Sonny Rollins doing a Freedom Suite in 1957, responding to the desegregation of Little Rock High School, or the refusal of desegregation of Little Rock High School. I made a statement on that record about the injustice going on to... uh people of color. You have Charles Mingus doing Fables of Phobos. Oh Lord, don't let them shoot us. Oh Lord, don't let them stab us. Oh Lord, don't let them tar us. Oh Lord, no more swastikas. Growing up in New York City in the housing projects, And during the civil rights movement, I was always aware of the idea of civil rights and protests. When we talk about jazz in America and civil rights, I mean, to me, jazz has always been the perfect example of what the promise of America is supposed to be. Nothing made them more furious than the sight of successful black Americans. We had a wonderful life within our family, but there was danger outside of that. Cool is a sort of password for a very subtle, quiet revolution. And Miles was wearing a white suit jacket. And the police photos show him sitting in the police station with white gauze on the top of his head and blood all across his very fine-looking white suit jacket. Pain. I seem to have an affection, 
a kind of sweet tooth for it. Bolts of lightning, little rivulets of thunder. That's from the Toni Morrison novel called Jazz. In the book, Toni Morrison writes about the new music of Harlem with its joyful and sad rhythms. They add up to a paradox with a complicated anger to it. When you see what's going on here in the States, man, it just seems like utter chaos. That anger in jazz springs from an abuse of the civil rights promised in the United Nations Declaration, a document written just when jazz starts to shift from being dance music to being something else, a new kind of art, an art with a message. Sometimes music gets to speak when words can't be found. I'm Alana Bridgewater. In this series, The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights, we'll look at the history of jazz, blues, the roots of black music in America, and what it all had to say about civil rights, economic rights, women's rights, and the rights of people around the world. Today, we take on civil rights. The rights of people to have equal access to justice, no matter their race or creed or color. This is arguably the source of America's pain, and she has an unhappy affection for it. A sweet tooth. September 15th, 1963. Fifteen sticks of dynamite planted by four members of the Ku Klux Klan in Birmingham, Alabama. Four African-American girls killed. Twenty-one people injured. A turning point in the civil rights movement, even though no one went to trial for the murders for ten years. These children unoffending, innocent. Martin Luther King made a sermon. They have something to say to every politician who has fed his constituents with the stale bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism. John Coltrane made a song. something about that sense of restraint and deep expressiveness that's part of Coltrane's tone that just really captures that era. Scott DeVoe teaches jazz at the University of Virginia. He's the author of The Birth of Bebop, A Social and Cultural History. If you hear that recording, it, it's, it's sobering. The opening is just bare and stark. It then moves through an improvisatory section that progresses for a while and then just stops and you go back to the opening again. And I don't really know of other jazz pieces that work that way. Cuthbert Simpkins is a doctor and inventor in Shreveport, Louisiana. He's known for his work on the prevention of violence, but in 1975, as a medical student at Harvard, he wrote a biography on John Coltrane. Alabama was a memorial to the four little girls that were killed in the church bombing in Birmingham. Reverend King did a speech about it 
And if you put, if you juxtapose the two, if you play the speech, you play the, the composition, you can see it pretty clearly that the two are related. One is derived from the other. From the low road of man's inhumanity to man to the high road of peace and brotherhood. These tragic deaths may lead our nation to substitute an aristocracy of character for an aristocracy of color. The spilled blood of these innocent girls may cause the whole citizenry of Birmingham to transform the negative extremes of a dark past into the positive extremes of a bright future. But it's a very sad song. It's... Um sad and defiant at the same time. It's a very moving, touching song uh, that, um, that he composed in memory of these kids. Take thee to thy eternal rest. But the idea that John Coltrane would write a political song in the first place is unusual for him. And in fact, when he recorded the song in New Jersey in November of 1963 with McCoy Tyner, Alvin Jones, and Jimmy Garrison, he didn't tell them what the song was about. They played five takes. He figured that the music would speak for itself. He was right. The next year, Martin Luther King would say, quote, Jazz speaks for life. The blues tells the story of life's difficulties, and if you think for a moment, you will realize they take the hardest realities of life and put them into music, only to come up with a new hope. In that context, the music, um, to me, was uh, an expression. You know, the thing was, the message to black people at that time was that you are nothing, you can't create anything, you never did anything. You cannot achieve a high level of intellectualism. My family always fought against that. My mother had a photograph of four black intellectuals in my bedroom, and she would say, that's who you are. But I realized that this is not what society wanted me to be. We weren't allowed to go to the library when I was here in Shreveport. My father told some young people that they had a right to go to the library, and when they went, they were beaten. My mother was arrested for riding in the front of the bus. That was quite an ordeal for me. We had crosses burned on our lawn. There was an attempt to poison my parents. They, they ended up actually poisoning my, uh, my grandparents. Uh, they went to the wrong Simpkins house. I remember my father gave a, a speech in church that said, if God can take care of a jackrabbit, he can take care of me. I remember I was a little boy, I think I remember. So, I, yeah, it, was, it must have been about, I don't know, eight, nine. I found this dead jackrabbit with a hole in his head on our lawn. I mean, we were happy as a family. We had a lot of family. I loved my cousins and my parents, and we had a wonderful life among, within our family, but there was, there was danger outside of that. We always lived with terror around us, but ready to defend ourselves, though. Our time yawning everywhere you go Times it harder than ever been before The blues 
starts becoming a genre in the late 19th, early 20th century, very deep south, particularly the Mississippi Delta, North Louisiana, East Texas. Clay Motley teaches the culture of the American South at Florida Gulf Coast University. Really high concentrations of African-American populations during this period. And this is also the exact same period as very intense Jim Crow culture of racial discrimination, segregation, sometimes violence, Klan activity. So blues as a popular music form amongst these populations is really inseparable from the racism and racial control and threats of violence that the people who made the blues had to deal with. So um, I think when you think about the origins of the blues and its early pre-war development, it's absolutely inseparable from the idea of civil rights because the blues was a mechanism for, in one way, coping with living in Jim Crow culture and some kinds trapped in that kind of society, but then also uh, a means of resistance as well. Jim Crow is the nickname given to racial segregation laws in most southern states in America from after the Civil War until the 1960s and the new civil rights laws. The name Jim Crow comes from a minstrel cartoon from the 19th century, a blackface troublemaker. And since then, Jim Crow has been shorthand for the laws, the institutions, and the social attitudes that want to keep African Americans from being seen as equal. It means institutional racism. At the time of early blues, it meant men hanging from trees. You notice that there are a lot of different themes in the blues that are repetitive, and lots of times they involve travel. That could be, you know, by train or by car. This is the period of the Great Migration. So you have the rural African-American population moving from the rural South to larger industrial cities. It could be Atlanta, Memphis, but oftentimes even farther north, St. Louis, Chicago, Rochester, Detroit. So train travel, escaping the South. I got the key to the highway And I'm built out and bound to go I'm gonna leave here running Walking is most too slow. The traveling bluesman was someone who was somewhat free from the Jim Crow system, or at least compared to the average African-American laborer. And sometimes that was maybe more free in reality, or sometimes it was just kind of a romantic notion of the traveling trickster bluesman. Everything about the Jim Crow system, which comes directly on the heels of slavery, 
is there is a dehumanization. If you are limited in what you can do um, in terms of economics and jobs, where you can live, maybe being trapped in debt in the sharecropping system, if you don't have enough money to even get a train ticket to get out, like let's say to go to Chicago, then in some ways you're, you're being dehumanized. I'm gonna ask the good Lord. So I think where the blues resists that is it celebrates the personhood of the singer and the audience. Someone who has freedom to drive down the road, who has the freedom to get on a train and make it to Detroit or Chicago, the very things that were always denied, you know, African-Americans in the rural South. Ellington is this extremely interesting figure. Ingrid Monson is the Quincy Jones Professor of Jazz Studies at Harvard University and author of the book Freedom Sounds about jazz and civil rights. He was raised in Washington, D.C. His parents would have been considered part of an African-American middle class, and the Washington, D.C. African-American community was a particularly attractive place for um, African-Americans early in the century, a long history of African-Americans being able to have freer lives in Washington, D.C. than the immediate South. So he had a tremendous sense of dignity. And Duke seemed to understand what he needed to do to get ahead. And people often talk about his Cotton Club days, a white club in Harlem segregated its audience, so none of the musicians would have been able to be patrons at this club. They're often playing as a soundtrack for, you know, kind of quasi-burlesque shows uh, with dancers, often called sepia-toned. What he did was create an amazing body of music, so this is the world that nurtures Duke Ellington. And through radio, it earned him a national reputation. This is Reminiscing in Tempo. A long work from 1934. begins to be outspoken in the 1930s when he finds that his music is being put in a box. And by this he had a famous sort of blow up with John Hammond. Now John Hammond, scion of an elite family who is a leftist progressive, views himself as a champion of black rights. He wrote this withering review of Duke Ellington's Reminiscing in Tempo. This is this piece in 1934 that he made that was four sides of 78s, and it was too pretentious for him. It was, you know, too, too musically ambitious. Just stick to the blues, Ellington.
So Ellington bristles. He says, you know, swing is only one component of this music. And he said that his aim has always been to make an authentic Negro music, something that speaks to the experience of African Americans. And he's not going to be told what that music is. He is somebody that was known in the black community as a race man meaning that he was willing to stand up for the race, which is how black newspapers would refer to African Americans. And he would do that through composition. He would do it through pieces that were designed through their titles as much as anything else to begin to show the kind of education that he had received in Washington, D.C., where there was a very proud black community. In 1943, he writes an extended work meant, in Ellington's words, as a parallel to the history of the Negro in America. Black, brown, and beige. Black, brown, and beige. And he begins with slavery, moves ahead to emancipation and into the 20th century, and it's full of fabulous music. This was his first concert in Carnegie Hall, and this is the point at which he decided that he was going to create a piece that was much, much larger than most jazz musicians would ever think of creating. The first edition of Black, Brown, and Beige was about 48 minutes long in three movements, where Black is dealing with the early experience through slavery, Brown, the 19th century, and then Beige, more or less, the present. It was a bit hurried in its putting together, and I think that today the part of the piece that people will point to is the first movement, Black, which opens with a work song and then has as its counterbalance a religious theme that is now known as Come Sunday. Lord, Lord of God Almighty, God up above, please look down and see my people through. This is a kind of piece that um, was challenging politically, and it was also challenging as far as its attempts to create something that 
felt more like classical music, and Ellington took that very seriously. I think he was hurt by some of the criticism that was probably more musically aimed at him than politically. The idea then was that if you could get a band like Duke Ellington into Carnegie Hall and if he could present a big piece like that that was designed to show the history of the American Negro, that that really was a major statement. That was really uh, the kind of thing that uh, in some ways pushed him to the front of awareness of what black history is and uh, you know willingness to use his celebrity to try to get his vision across he would say things like you know there are more churches in harlem than there are nightclubs This is the Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91. I'm Alana Bridgewater. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I uh, am, or rather, my name is Duke Ellington. I have a band of musicians who are en route to Sweden at the moment, and uh, all the kids in the band want you to know that we do love you madly. In 1963, Duke Ellington gave an interview to Swedish television, and at that time, he looked back briefly on Black, Brown, and Beige. Black, Brown, and Beige, which was a tone parallel to the history of the Negro in America, their place, their major contributions, which have been many. And uh, the Negro in America is a very proud race of people, and uh, I'm very, very happy to be here representing them. <laughs> There's an interview in Downbeat with Duke Ellington, uh, an article about him in 1936. Joel Dinnerstein teaches at Tulane University in New Orleans, and he's the author of a book called The Origins of Cool in Postwar America. And it's a line about how he's always smiling. There is a sentence in the article that says that Duke Ellington is always a perfect gentleman and always smiles whenever he's introduced. One of our big requests called Satin Doll. He knows what it's like to anger a dominant race. And that is just a sentence in the article, as if this is a kind of assumption that we all have. What happens in the late days of swing is that more and more of the soloists are given the chance to express themselves musically. But they're also paying attention to the show business, the way musicians are expected to present themselves to white audiences. And what they see, they don't like. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Mr. Armstrong, and we're going to swing one of the good old good ones for you. Beautiful number. I cover the waterfront. It's the I smile. The I like it. Look at that. It was the symbol that said, we agree. We understand the social order, and we understand our place in it. And our smile cements the deal. If you see videos of groups like Jimmy Lunsford or Cab Calloway, you're going to see a lot of people just kind of smiling and looking like they're having a wonderful time. That's, in many ways, the shadow of the minstrel show. And so one artist, a tenor sax player for Count Basie's band, makes a radical move. He stopped smiling. His name is Lester Young.
Joel Dinnerstein. Lester Young stops smiling on stage and everywhere. And when he stops smiling, it becomes, in fact, a surprising act of cultural leadership in which all jazz musicians after him stop smiling. And this, in fact, is one of the major trigger moments of what I would call cultural rebellion that precedes political rebellion. He was like a star soloist. So he didn't have to be the businessman who runs the band. He didn't have to smile in public. That's what he decided. And even before that, he had decided that because big bands all wore uniforms, generally tuxedos, and all looked the same, Lester Young was a romantic artist. He just couldn't cope with looking like everybody else. So as early as 20 years old, he starts dressing distinctively and particularly starts holding his saxophone up at a 45 degree angle, just to be different, just to be stylistically distinctive. And everybody notices and as a sort of performance trait, it is actually exciting how Lester Young plays it in the way that people would think it's exciting how you played a certain electric guitar solo. He wears sunglasses all the time and a pork pie hat. This is the invention of cool. And it's not just a buzzword. For Lester Young, it's a statement. And all of this was in service to being left alone by white people, by what we call the white gaze, by white oppression. It was a way of breaking the deal and saying, not only am I not smiling, I do not expect any change to come in this society. And that's the importance of cool. It's a withdrawal that is also involved with black pride and a positive ethnic culture and difference that is, in a sense, distrust and an act of hostility against assimilation. There is this whole thing about the cool stance. Some of the attitude that goes into sort of bebop is that kind of deformation of mastery. I'm not going to act like you want me to. I'm going to dress how I want. I'm going to turn it into my statement of who I am. You know, and lo and behold, all the white people want to emulate it. But it becomes a protective way of being that can be inspiring, intimidating, and assertive at the same time. So people talk about the stance that develops under bebop and you know, Lester Young is part of that time period. Bebop. That's when things really turn around. Musicians became politicized by segregation, by the experience of being on the front lines. I would say, generally speaking, there is nothing explicit in of course, you, you could say, what is there in instrumental jazz that actually would show a certain sense of resistance to political or economic events or racial events? And you have to, in some ways, begin to get a, a gut feeling from the music that it's addressing it. But that really doesn't start to happen until the 1940s and bebop by which time I think people begin to feel that there is a kind of resistance to American culture. And it's coming from a group of musicians who I don't really think want to think of themselves as political, but they are political because of their, their constant awareness of what it means to be black and, uh, and trying to you know, deal with the South on a sort of a really blunt personal basis. 
Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, Max Roach. They're just young young men. They're the, the most talented of the group coming out of the swing era, coming up with this fairly esoteric music called bebop, that that in itself was enough, I think, to unsettle most people. The bebop artists take Lester Young's cool to a whole new level. They're not just refusing to smile at the white audience, they're refusing to entertain them. So that there is just a general sense that the jazz musicians are presenting the public with just a sense that we're not playing that game anymore. White musicians had taken over swing. Which itself was something that had been pioneered for the most part by African-American musicians. Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and a couple of the musicians said that they were going to create a music that white musicians couldn't play. That was their goal. And so they became virtuosic. They studied harmony and they started playing these really fast, aggressive solos that were really difficult. And if you didn't have either the musical theory or background, and you couldn't improvise at that high a level, you left the stand humiliated. But it was quite intentional as a way of saying, this is our music, but you're not gonna appropriate this from us anymore. Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie studied the music of Debussy and Stravinsky's Rite of Spring at the New York Public Library. Definitely, study is absolutely necessary in all forms. It's just like any talent that's born within somebody. It's just like a good pair of shoes when you put a shine on it, you know? Charlie Parker spoke to fellow sax player Paul Desmond in 1954. You can do much more with music than that. It can be very descriptive in all kinds of ways, you know? Schooling brings out the polish, you know, of any talent that happens anywhere in the world. Einstein had schooling. <laughs> schooling is one of the most wonderful things there has ever been, you know. I'm glad to hear you say this. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Looking back on bebop, you would say, yes, in fact, bebop is an early wave of the civil rights movement. In many ways, it is preceding the civil rights movement by a full decade. Bebop musicians are like any other sort of young group of artists who are rebelling against their former generation. They're like the Impressionists, like any other, like the American Romantic writers. They're saying, okay, all that stuff was appropriated, all that swing music. So we're going to play in these small bands of four and five. We're all going to take long solos. They're going to be virtuosic. And if you want to play with us, you have to learn it. And so bebop is the break by which you recognize that there is a revolution happening artistically before there's a political revolution. The political revolution does follow. It's prompted by a crisis in Arkansas in the late 1950s, and this time jazz responds directly to what's happening in a broken America. An extreme situation has been created in Little Rock. This challenge must be met, and with such measures as will preserve to the people as a whole their lawfully protected rights. In September 1957, nine African American students showed up at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas to start classes. The first integrated classes at an all white school. 
they met an angry mob. We are going to maintain segregated schools down in Dixie. Desegregation is against the Bible. I find my scripture for this in Genesis 9, 27. Eight of the students accompanied by parents and people from their church parish were turned away. A ninth, Elizabeth Eckford, got separated somehow. She walked into the middle of a mob by herself. Can you tell me your name, please? Are you going to go to school here at uh, Central High? You don't care to say anything, is that right? This girl here was the first Negro, apparently, of high school age to show up at Central High School the day that a federal court ordered it integrated. She was followed in front of the school by an angry crowd, many of them shouting epithets at her. And they're trying simply to walk in the front door of the school, and they're spat upon by an angry white mob who are calling them names. Governor Orville Faubus did not want this school integrated. He calls out the Arkansas National Guard to keep them from going in. I have therefore in accordance with the solemn responsibilities and the oath of my office taken the following action. Units of the National Guard have been and are now being mobilized with the mission to maintain or restore the peace and good order of this community. Advanced units are already on duty on the grounds of Central High School. It is one of those events that media covers in a wider way, and so pictures of this are emerging around the world. And people are calling on President Eisenhower to do something. And he hems and haws. And so three weeks later, he federalizes the National Guard in order to integrate the school. Mob rule can not be allowed to override the decisions of our court. We've just got a report here on this end that the students are in. It was this huge confrontation seen around the world. You have Charles Mingus doing Fables of Phobos. I remember listening to Fables of Phobos as a kid. My father had the record at home. I think Mingus struck that very interesting and important intermediary place between tragedy and comedy, which I think was a unique gift to him. You know, he did that very well. He recorded it with Columbia, but Columbia would not allow him to use words. So all you had was the title Fables of Phobos. And then a year later, on a small record label, Candid, he did record it with the words which are blunt and biting. He was playing on that recording with Eric Dolphy, who is one of the great avant-garde saxophonists. And there is no piano or anything 
uh, kind of holding the harmony together. It's a very intense recording. It's an extremely angry, bitter piece that manages somehow to convey enough black humor in it that it's it's really still a favorite with jazz musicians and with audiences it's it's just it transmutes mingus's compositional abilities into directly into civil rights history of that time and in the late 1950s while rock and roll and pop music have nothing to say about politics only cars and girls charles mingus the outlaw decides to speak up about the state of race relations in America. In 1966, Charles Mingus is evicted from his New York apartment. Mr. Mingus, what do you think of this eviction today? I think America is beautiful. I think that uh, for the first thing, there was no attorney on trial for me when they gave me this eviction notice. And the next thing is that it's illegal what they're doing because uh, that's a drag. Well, I've been trying to get a place to build a school for about five years. I've been pushed around by this state with corruption. The cats taking payola, asking me to move. I've written the governor, I've written the president about it, everything, you know. Police find a needle among his things, and Charles Mingus is arrested. Later, he'll check himself into a psychiatric hospital. Uh, you deny taking the heroin. What? Did, you, did they accuse you of taking heroin? <laughs> The angry black man is a racist idea, a stereotype. It is the flip side of the smiling minstrel. It is an excuse to crack down. Nothing made them more furious than the sight of successful black American. Why are you being invicted? I have no idea, really. <laughs> what did you want to do here? Did you live here or what? No, I was going to school here. You, you were going to school here? William, this is school. I see. How do you feel about, about this action today with all your things out in the street? Uh, I hope that uh, the communists blow you people up, man. You dig? That's where I am. Red China. Who do you feel seeing you unfairly? You can't be all these badges, can you? After Fables of Phobos, the next jazz musician to step up is Sonny Rollins. In 1958, he releases Freedom Sweet. Well, actually, it was written in 57, and I think I recorded it in the beginning of 58, January, February. For 58, it was, it was actually recorded. Unlike Mingus's Fables of Phobos, it is straight-up instrumental. Well, I, in order to really bring it into focus, I'd have to tell you about my childhood. My grandmother was an activist, and she was very much involved in the civil rights movements of the day. And that involved people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Paul Robeson at Al. She used to take me. I was a little, I would say, well, I was walking, so I must have been four years old anyway. She used to take me with her on these civil rights marches, parades, up and down the avenues of Harlem. 
And these civil rights marches were for the purpose of fighting back against the times of the day, which were the uh, unfair treatment, I would say, of citizens of color. That's always been my life, thanks to my uh, dear grandmother. As with John Coltrane's Alabama, the politics that inform the music sneak up on the listener. There's nothing explicit, except for the album cover. For Freedom Suite, Sonny Rollins published a statement in the liner notes. Scott DeVoe. The Freedom Suite has about 50 or 60 words from Sonny Rollins that I look at today and and I think most of us would say that seems fairly mild. If you got any kind of notoriety in your world, or publicity, you're famous in any kind of way, you should use that platform to uh, speak out against uh, any injustices which were going on and which you were subject to. You just have this brief sentence and and that's, that's it. That's the only time that he speaks in his own voice. If I hadn't had that upbringing and knew what it felt like to resist, I might have been reticent to make a statement. Yeah, but not. I had been brought up in that milieu. America is deeply rooted in Negro culture. Its colloquialisms, its humor, its music. How ironic that the Negro, who has exemplified the humanities in his very existence, is being rewarded with inhumanity. That's two sentences. So uh, I did the LP, and that was written on the notes in the back of the album. That was my statement about the Freedom Suite. Okay, so I got pushback. Of course, I got a lot of pushback when I went out to California. I got pushback from some of the people that I had been recording for out there. In a panic, Riverside Records pulled the album. They renamed it Shadow Waltz after one of the other, less provocative songs on the recording. The producer, Oren Keepnews, added a new set of liner notes. The point was to muddy the message. It freaked out the record company enough that the rest of the back of the jacket was filled with various people opining about what it is that Sonny Rollins really meant by this. It's kind of a strange sense that actually having a jazz musician open his mouth and say anything was already crossing a line that made a lot of people feel quite uncomfortable. It was a sore point. I don't know the story from Orrin's point of view, and and it hasn't been discussed a lot, but I know that he... uh, he, he, got, he got pushed back and ostracized to some extent for allowing this civil rights record to come out at that time. That was 1957, 1958. It was before any protests of that sort have, had been made. I can safely say that jazz, as represented by America, represented freedom when they picked up their horn and played. That freedom of expression, they're really communicating with a higher force. So that's what improvisation is. They're really just playing what comes from above. Freedom, that's jazz, jazz is that. More than 50 years later, a question remains. 
Is jazz still connecting with freedom? Heavy-hearted, I sit. With its own political moment? With the civil rights promised in the UN Declaration? Too weak to stand and too tired to fight on another day. So I'll lay. I'll lay in the land of a Keldama. A land bought by betrayal and soiled with the blood of brutality. But this land is my land. It's my land. It's my land. It's my land. Or so they say. We're in this moment right now. We've got, you know, ever since the Black Lives Movement took off, this feeling that, oh, I see what activism on the ground means. And um, we're in a particularly, you know, nasty time period now. What's interesting to me is the way in which a certain kind of socially conscious hip-hop is beginning to include more sounds that sound like they're from jazz and particularly avant-garde jazz in a way they didn't before. My mustard-seeded faith is planted on wicked soil and only garners fruits of hatred, degradation, and death. I exposed my students to Terrence Blanchard's album called Breathless. Oh, the irony. In death do I find my escape. When we talk about jazz in America, and civil rights. I mean, to me, jazz has always been the perfect example of what the promise of America is supposed to be. Terrence Blanchard is a jazz trumpeter. His career started in the 80s with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Over the last 27 years, he's also written the soundtracks for the films of Spike Lee, including, in 2018, Black Klansman. In 2015, he released an album called Breathless with the E Collective. At least part of the album was written in memory of Eric Garner, whose last words famously were, I can't breathe, as he was struggling with New York police for his life. Can't breathe. see what's going on here in the States, man. It just seems like utter chaos. Some of the things that I thought we were past, you know, I'm a child of the 70s, so I thought, I, I understood that racism wasn't ever going to go away in my lifetime, but I still thought we were way past some of the stuff that I'm seeing and hearing. The misogyny, the bigotry is just incredible. For Dr. Cuthbert Simpkins, the end point of the music isn't despair, but something complex. I think that Coltrane's music makes one whole. I think it makes you intolerant of injustice 
I think the assassination of Reverend King, we're still, we haven't gone past that. Uh, what he understood was that this is an American struggle. Yes, we are, as a people, African Americans, singled out, targeted. But you know, white people get beat up by police too. And it's everybody's problem, and, that, and we all have an interest together. There's a lack of analysis, there's a lack of understanding of fundamental problems of our nation. A lot of things are led by media and not by considered investigation and data. So, we, you know, we, we're still sort of wandering around right now, trying to find ourselves. You know, we're standing on some broad shoulders, man. We're having the ability to do this because somebody saw injustice and stood up and spoke truth to power and maybe suffered the consequences for it. You know, in football, they have a saying that, you know, when a player gets hurt, next man up. You know, it's the next man up. It's our turn. Those guys have done a great job. Now it's time for us to pick up the mantle and run with it. The historian Timothy Snyder says this that some Americans can be persuaded to live shorter and worse lives as long as they are under the impression that others suffer even more than they do. That, in a nutshell, is what stands in the way of civil and economic rights in America. And still, artists push on. Thelonious Monk said, it's always night, or we wouldn't need the light. Next time, Jazz and the Right to Make a Living. I'm Alana Bridgewater. You've been listening to The Journey to Jazz and Human Rights on Jazz FM 91.